Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, do you remember learning about, about busing when you were in, in school? No. I Nobody talked about it that I can remember as a student and... You know, we, we had busting in my school, several of my schools I went to. I went, I, I think I've talked about it this episode. I went to very different schools. I went to public school, pu- you know, uh, public schools kind of in, in the city of Tulsa that um, were very diverse. And I went to private schools that were not, and they were different worlds. But when I was in public school, we, oh, we had busting most of the time I was there. But it's one of those things that could have really been an opportunity to teach students about like all these civic and social studies issues, right? History yeah. and and, and, and policy. And we, it's one of those things that nobody uh, that I can remember talked about. So kids like talked about it amongst themselves. I think I more learned about busing from like hearing other people talk about it. I remember hearing older white people, especially when I met the people who went to my high school, which was, you know, very white when it was integrated in the sixties and it opened, I think in the sixties. And then when I went there, it was very diverse, multicultural school. And, um, you know, they had very, the white people said negative things about busing. And so I had this, like, as a, I had this like negative perception, busing is bad. And then I got older, like read new stuff and read Nicole Hannah Jones work on school segregation and started to question, oh, wait, maybe busing had a lot of positive effects. And then more recently, I read other people that's pointed out to me like kind of the racism of busing, right? That it was primarily students of color being bussed into primarily white schools. And it didn't go the other way, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I've had to learn a lot about busing. It's funny. We Did you? Just, well, hold on. We've just been talking about busing, but we didn't actually talk, like we didn't define what busing was. We we're just talking about busing. But like in terms of like a definition, like what would you say a definition of busing would be? The way I would define busing is it is the... Students getting on, I can't use the word busing in the definition, right? <laughs> I students, think, yeah, no, you get deducted uh, points. Students getting on a bus to achieve uh, more integrated schools. I think that was the purpose and policy behind busing. And, and uh, like I said, in practice, this tended to end up being black and brown students primarily getting on buses and going to primarily white schools because the neighborhoods were oftentimes either drawn or segregated because of redlining and other things historically. So it was a means to achieve school integration post right. brown brown v board and and funding decisions I, well i didn't i don't remember learning about it in schools i just i don't remember i'm in uh, obviously I'm, I'm in massachusetts and we actually i think the first time i really learned about busing was there's a book all souls a family story from southie in which like this family was uh, the one of the one of his brothers the the author's brother was to, a picture of him was throwing a bottle at, at a bus of, of black students. It's, it's a really interesting story, but honestly, like I don't, I don't really think we ever talked about it prior. And so that was a really fascinating read for me. I think my sister got it for me when I was probably around when it came out. 
And then I think a couple of years back in 2014, because it was the 40th anniversary, I think it's 40th, 40th anniversary because it was in 74, the 40th anniversary of busing, WBUR, our local NPR station, uh, did a series about it. And so I know that like my colleagues in my department, I don't teach U.S., more modern U.S. history, but I know that my colleagues have really been trying to incorporate to tell more of a full story of Boston busing. And so I think those that was very helpful with the 40-year anniversary. Yeah, and I mean, of course, you know, I mean, thinking about the role of segregation and integration in schools and who it benefits and, you know, why I think, right, the, the, the term that Derek Bell uses when he talks about critical race theory is that oftentimes even like busing plans, there's an interest convergence for white people to agree to busing plans that are, you know, don't ha- make them make any of the sacrifices. And so I think it's obviously a, an issue that we need to continue talking about because schools have been resegregating in many parts of the country. Oh, yeah. So we need some lessons. We need somebody to write lessons about busing, publish those, and then share those lessons with us. That's what I need. Is that what you need? I would. Yeah, that's exactly what I need right now. If only there was someone for us. Wait a second. I think, Dan, we have a guest. Dr. Catherine Parada is here with us, who just wrote about this very recently. Dr. Parada, it's nice to, to, to finally meet you. Well, thank you. It's so nice to meet you too, finally. We are thrilled to have you. Do you mind telling us uh, a little bit about yourself? Who is Catherine Parada? Well, Catherine Parada, or Katie, um, used to be a middle school social studies teacher. I started out teaching in Brooklyn in the New York Department of Education. I used to go to New York City public schools and attended Catholic high school in Staten Island. And I got my undergrad degree in secondary education and social studies from State University of New York, College at Oneonta, and my master's in history from the City University College of Staten Island. And I have now been in Atlanta, Georgia for 11 years. And I teach, I'm an assistant professor of middle grades and secondary education with the social studies emphasis at Mercer University. Our flagship campus is in Macon, home of the Allman Brothers. I see you guys are music fans. I'm at the Atlanta campus and representing the Tift College of Education. Very nice. And and she's referencing our, I have uh, a, a poster that I bought in college that was very, it's actually more of like a painting of the Radiohead Bins cover, which was very debated when we moved apartments, whether I'd be allowed to put this up. I, that's, I did win, I did win that one. So, so that okay. our guest room has like one, one thing up that I used to own from college. Um, and I have a keyboard and a ukulele in the background. Ooh, I have guitars not, too. It, yeah. What? I probably have a guitar somewhere, but I have not. Oh, I do have a guitar back there, but I've never, I try to take lessons on it when I was doing my student teaching and I didn't finish them. Wouldn't it be legendary though? If this is how our band started and we like made it <laughs> that like, and deep down that's always been my dream is to be in a rock band. So I think we should do it. My humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, tell us a little bit about your teaching experience. What, what subjects did you teach? What were, were your school experiences like that, that kind of got you? Cause a lot of that you often rest on, I think a lot of those experiences when you're working with teacher candidates who are, who are on their way. Yeah. I, so growing up 
in New York City, I was I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened. And I feel like now, 20 years later, I'm comfortable with admitting that because when I first started teaching, I was 22. And to admit that, like, then the kids were like, oh, you're, you're so, you know, I don't know, young or I'm not sure. But I always felt a little strange revealing that. But now, um, you know, that event really influenced me because I was a kid during this traumatic time and I didn't really understand at all what was going on and I wanted to learn about it and I wanted to I really wanted to be a teacher I always loved history and social studies and 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 that's what drove me to start teaching in the middle school in New York I taught seventh and eighth grades that was the first half and then the second half of U.S. history but what really influenced me was as a social studies major in my undergrad program, I took a lot of history classes and I took one on the history of the city of New York. And it was the first time I ever learned about slavery in New York you know, it, from its colonial founding. And despite its emancipation, it was still a very segregated city and state well through the civil war and after and that led me to do research on Elizabeth Jennings and she was a African-American school teacher who was ejected from a streetcar in Manhattan in 1854 and she was ejected due to her race and she had she had sued the trolley company and Chester Arthur who later become president was her lawyer and she sued in New York Supreme Court and won her case and I was just really stunned I learned about her case coming home from a professional development workshop as a classroom teacher I was getting my master's in history at CUNY and it just set me on this trajectory of wanting to learn about kind of like how you were saying Michael about growing up in Massachusetts and you didn't know about this history of busing very much I didn't know any I, I didn't know about Elizabeth Jennings story and the role of slavery and the development of New York and its after effects and that really influenced me so then when we moved to Atlanta it was the height of the Great Recession. So again, I feel like old, like that was like 10, 11 years ago. <laughs> and I couldn't find a social studies classroom job. And I was brand new to the state, but I had gotten a position as a non-tenure tracked uh, history instructor here um, at a two-year college, which is now part of Georgia State University. And I just was starting to teach the world history surveys and the U.S. history surveys, and I loved it. And then I, but really loved teaching teachers. And so I did my PhD in teacher ed. And now I get to combine my history and my love of social studies with our students at Mercer. Uh, it's been a, I think it's been a really interesting journey, 15 years. But learning about Elizabeth Jennings. And I think even, again, just living through 9-11 really put me on this path of studying historical empathy and being committed to teaching social studies because there's so many people out there who are like, why is this happening? I don't understand. And I felt that way. I think that's that's so many of our stories, right, is that we 
we see these holes in our understanding about the world or like these histories that weren't told to us that we, you know, I know my experience was very similar. And a lot of our guests have had very similar experiences. We're like, why am I not learning about this? This is like, seems like a critically important issue. So I think that that resonates with a lot of people who stay in, in social studies. And when I moved to Atlanta, I, I admit coming from the North, you know, I was taught that, you know, the civil war was very much, we won, they lost. They had slaves, we didn't. And then I start learning about this in my undergraduate studies with New York. And then again, moving to the South, I'm like, wow, it was a lot more complex than that. And especially living through the Confederate monuments, controversies that are going on and the recent events with the election. It's really quite it's a really interesting time to be a social studies teacher. And I, I, I feel like I tell my students that all the time, but it's true. And every week we meet, there's always something new to discuss. Yeah. And which in a way it's like the stars align and makes the case that yes, this is important and we need to discuss and talk about these issues. I know. Right. And there's an insurrection and all of a sudden people think we need to learn about civics, right? <laughs> <laughs> so your article was published in Middle Level Learning last year in 2020, and the article is titled Promoting Historical Empathy with the C3 Framework, Analyzing the Busing Controversy in United States History. So can you tell us uh, about this article and lesson? Yes. So I was trying to be a good social studies history teacher and watching the, in 2019, the debates, the Democratic debates leading up to the election and I found it so fascinating the controversy over Joe Biden's position on busing in the 70s and of course Kamala Harris's rebuttal of that that she was that little girl and it, it, it was powerful on many levels but again as a social studies teacher and somebody who researches historical empathy, I was like, wow, this is why we do this work. Why should we be concerned about what somebody said or believed in or supported 50 some odd years ago? And, and I just thought the whole exchange was just so interesting. And, and again, like if many adults weren't aware of busing in general, or even like how you know, now Vice President Harris, was a kid directly affected by that in California. How many other people aren't aware of that legacy where they live? And it still goes on in many different iterations today around the country, as you guys were mentioning before. So I wrote the article really in, a, in many ways, keeping my former students who were middle schoolers long time ago who are now adults themselves but I really thought about like what how would I have addressed this issue teaching the primaries and this matter of busing in its legacy today and I decided to try to articulate how historical empathy so this process of engaging students in analyzing primary sources to identify historical contexts and how those contexts impact perspectives at a particular time can 
resonate today, not only in a matter of expressing an effective response to that historical context, but also understanding how the past and present are different. And yet looking at how the past still very much interacts with our present and can inform us for the future. So again, looking at that, that one instance, I was like, wow, you know, we're looking at something that a very contemporary person. So now is the president and a position he held 50 years ago, and we're still discussing why this is relevant and important. And that's what inspired me to write the article and to write it in a way where the process of historical empathy can be implemented with the C3 framework inquiry arc. So can you, you mentioned this term historical empathy, and maybe you within that explanation already defined it, but does that, so does that, do, do you define historical empathy as being both something that helps us understand people from the past perspective and time period and the present, or is it, is that way you use that term about one or the other? It is, I define historical empathy as a three pronged approach in which we are engaging students in not just studying history for its sake, but trying to engage in that process of perspective taking, whereas why would somebody hold a certain belief back then? Or, you know, however look far, far uh, long ago you want to look at. But looking at what factors shaped why people felt the way they did or acted the way they did. In the case of this issue of busing with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, it's really interesting when you read the primary sources at that time where Joe Biden was explaining how he believed in desegregation, but he didn't believe it should be federally mandated. So now looking at that perspective from the sources, you examine it from our 21st century perspective and looking at and like, okay, why did he think that particular position back then? How and why did, he, did that maybe change or evolve now? And Allowing us, uh, allowing students to have a response, an emotive response. No doubt kids of color who watch that or maybe will engage in a lesson on busing might have direct or vicarious experiences with that, with the issue of desegregation. Likewise, it might be difficult for white kids to understand why this was a controversy and why it still is in many places in the country today. So I guess in my long way of trying to define this process of historical empathy, I think it's like humanizing this content from the past in order to understand that, you know, people might not have done things that we would consider acceptable today but we got to understand maybe why people did or thought the way they did at their time to really understand then what was the impact of those choices and what do we do with those choices today? I'm also, I'm really curious too about um, when you've done this lesson or when you think about, you know, doing this lesson with students, 
how you teach students to to also like because we're still looking at a politician, right? So Joe Biden was a politician when he had these views, and politicians don't always say what they think, right? They don't always, and and so I just think this issue of busing, also the the arguments have I think often been dishonest historically, right? Um, so for example, a lot of people who opposed busing because they didn't want racial integration used the excuse that they wanted neighborhood schools, right? So they like, so how do you? Because that that's really takes some like sophisticated work for students to work yeah. through the historical context and those arguments. Have you found that that has to be part of the process or that they read these literally, or are they able to kind of, you know, figure out a little bit that, well, they're saying this, but I wonder if this is the reason. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I lend so much of what, of what I developed for this lesson plan and what I continue to learn about historical empathy to the works of our scholars, such as like Jason Endicott and Sarah Brooks, whose 2018 article in the Teaching History Handbook, you know, pretty much highlights this, highlights that very point. Historical empathy is a process. And this is very sophisticated analysis for young kids, secondary kids, adults, which you know, side note, I was just very delighted and surprised my article got accepted. <laughs> but because I didn't very know. Very good. Thank Fair you. Nice. Because I, I, it is tough. But I think it's important to, for us practitioners and researchers, that I don't think you could just capture an empathetic response to historical content and its impact today in the scope of one lesson. And I think that in mind, it's hard to measure, it's hard to assess, which might mean that some more systemic changes need to be made in terms of how we teach and standards. And I know that's not exactly what you were asking, but it is a process. And it, maybe a kid who learns about busing in seventh grade might be able to revisit it down the road in high school and then maybe down the road again in college and have the different perspectives on how they came to understand the contexts and how those contexts shaped historical agents and what that means today. So that even could be interesting to see, you know, teach this lesson over very longitudinally and see how responses change. But it's fluid. And historical empathy, as much as we strive to assess for evidence of empathy, I think we need to keep in mind it's got to be done holistically because empathetic responses can change based on the day, based on the kid, based on the person. So I know that for, for our listeners, the, the lesson is available at, through NCSS Middle Level Learning. But do you mind just giving us a broad overview of your of the lesson? Sure. So the lesson is broken up into several learning activities. And again, if you're not familiar with the format of the C3 framework, I try to meld the process of historical empathy to align with the inquiry arc. So starting with creating compelling questions, which the one I developed for this lesson for that overarching big idea theme 
for the lesson would, was, was busing effective in promoting civil rights in American schools? And I had four subsequent supporting questions for specific learning activities. So the first activity was a KWL chart. So trying to gather a sense of students' prior knowledge of what do they know about busing? What do they want to know? And of course, revert, returning to the learned column once the lesson was complete. Some other activities I had connected again to each supporting question. So four activities that involved analysis of court documents. So for example, Swan versus Mecklenburg from 1970 where the Supreme Court ruled that segre school segregation was unconstitutional and that busing could be a way to mandate the desegregation process. Other documents I include for students to analyze were some of the opinions held on the Swan decision. I included in a second activity that connected to the, again, perspectives on who supported and opposed busing with narratives from people who were affected by busing. So including Howard Bloom and his article on the history of busing and race in Los Angeles in the 70s, an article from Lewis, Henry Louis Gates, and some other articles as well about desegregation and busing in Kansas. So for students to get a broad sense of this was not just even just like a North Carolina problem or just a Boston problem, this was a national problem. Then extending into other supporting questions, asking students to think about the experiences of the children who were bused. So oftentimes we look at the court documents and we look at the opinions of the adults, but what about the kids who were involved? So I found some documents from African-American children and who recounted their experiences once they became adults, some of whom became teachers themselves. And all these documents in the lesson plan have are designed as DBQ, so document-based questions, so with questions to help students analyze the document with supporting graphic organizers in order for students to identify what's the historical context of, let's say, a court document from 1970 and so forth, and then really just culminating into a document-based question essay. So again, this is not just one lesson, really, it's over the could should be taught over the course of many days, if time permits, where students can identify benefits and shortcomings of busing, citing, uh, citing their primary source evidence, but then really making this a unique lesson or collection of lessons as aligned with the C3 framework is that fourth dimension of taking informed action. And so at the end of the teaching, students can research an issue that impacts their community. So it could be busing, it could be something maybe dealing with the pandemic or schools or whatever the concern is of our students. And I think this is why historical empathy was a good fit to align to the see-through framework where students can take agency and to do something with this historical content they learned and with those emotive reactions that they may have. So students can write as a summative act activity, a letter that they can send to hopefully a representative who will listen and who might respond. So again, it's not really one lesson, it's a 
several lessons. And again, hopefully designed flexible enough where teachers can modify this to meet the needs of their students and meet the expectations that they're teaching under. One of my uh, favorite, I think a, a big struggle for a lot of social studies teachers is, is taking that last part into action, right? Is to actually think, okay, what are we going to do with this? And maybe it's recent events, but I've started to think more critically about like, man, I wonder if I, I kind of, I don't know why it hadn't dawned on me more, but the letter oftentimes to some of our representatives can be effective and help support and some can be swayed. And some are the ones that are enforcing these things, right? That are literally the ones causing the problems. And so in those cases, I've started to think maybe we could have our students identify the, like the activist groups that are already doing work on this. And then they can see what are these groups doing and what can we learn from them? But, but the topic, it, unfortunately, is still so pertinent, right? Like has, you know, civil rights is an ongoing issue and school segregation and funding is, is still an ongoing issue. So I think your lesson is really relevant for our uh, students today. Thank you. And who knew that a year or so later, so many more issues were going to come <laughs> to the forefront in our mainstream. And I say in the mainstream media because, as you were saying earlier, Dan, about the the January 6th events, oh, we have to teach civics in schools. Like, no, this didn't just <laughs> all of a sudden happen. This has been going on a long time. And I think right. so many of us social studies practitioners have been, you know, raising the alarms for so many years and i'd like to think that maybe now will be heard but i guess ultimately you know it, to empower our students to feel like they can do something is where we right. start so even if it's not like you said a letter just research who who is it that would be your point of contact to address some of these issues that might be facing your community and also social media. It's um, I'm really fortunate that I live in a neighborhood in an area where we have just a lot of grassroots, just ordinary citizens who are just trying to do good work and raise these issues and bring awareness to this history all on their own. And it's, so, yeah, I'm hoping that this is just one of many tools that can help. So what advice would you have for teachers or educators who want to bring this lesson or want to bring more historical empathy into their into their classes? I would recommend that if you are going to embark on the process of implementing and promoting historical empathy, it's something that, again, it's not a one and done thing. It's something that you have to continually do. And by continually fostering historical empathy means that we have to then do our homework in examining our positionalities, ourselves, and challenge maybe even what we think we know and come to realize what we don't know because you need to present students with multiple perspectives, with primary sources and those secondary sources to help students build context. And even though it's time consuming, we're really lucky with the internet. I mean, so many <laughs> <laughs> documents are digitized and, 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 it's a, and that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing for democracy 
And I know spoken like a true social studies teacher that, you know, we can get this information. So it's a matter of making sure that you're doing your homework to make sure. I mean, you can't cover everything, but if you're going to do something like on busing, you have to present as many different perspectives as you can to show that it's, it was, it's a nuanced issue. It's complex. It was complex 50 years ago. It's still complex now. And it might be very confusing or distressing to students to understand why people might have been against school desegregation. But that uncomfortable feeling is part of that effective response and then hopefully can tie into that taking informed action piece of doing something, even if it's just, again, being informed of who your local representatives are or your community helpers. And just being aware that, again, that so many of these pressing issues that our country faces didn't just happen. History repeats itself. I mean, I know it's the cliche, but it does. And even though our context today may be different from the past, we need to understand why those differences are important. Because that's another thing, too, with historical empathy. We don't want to engage our students in sympathies and feelings. I don't want to say feeling sorry is necessarily a bad thing, but there comes a point where you can't condone bad actions in the past, mm-hmm. even though maybe people back in the day believed that certain things were okay or tolerable, they're not. And so we as educators who are going to be courageous and going into implementing this process have to, again, like I said, be aware of maybe what we know, be aware of what we don't know, and I guess try to support our students going through that, that process of like hard histories and... Just being aware that the past and present are different, you know, try mm-hmm. not to impose our views on the past, but that there are ultimately things that can't be condoned, but we still engage in trying to understand why people believed in certain things so as to perhaps maybe address issues today and do better. Yeah, I agree. That's such a great way of, I think, putting it. And of course, yeah, we often want to teach the stories of the people who've overcome Um, all forms of oppression in the past, but we need to understand why the oppressors were able to implement, you know, policies of oppression. And that helps our students learn so much. And so, well, thank you so much. I think this has been really helpful and I'm just excited. I'm going to, I've got to get this lesson out and get it in the classroom because I really appreciate like how much you've thought through this full lesson. And um, it hits on so many of those ideas in the, in the social studies field, I think that we often value. So, so thank you for this article. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me chat about it. And I I hope to come back again. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We would love to. So can you tell us where can our our listeners find you and your work online? Okay, you can find me. Well, I'm on Twitter. So you can tweet me at Dr. K.A. Parada. You can find me on LinkedIn. I got an academia website. And of course, you can check out the faculty directory of the Mercer University Tift College of Education, where you can have access to the site, the citations and to most of my articles. And of course, feel free to contact me if you have any questions or would like anything for me to email you. Excellent. 
Again, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope to continue the conversation here and everywhere else. Thank you. All right. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, and I get it, we're here for you. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook and that other place that we've often forgotten. If you haven't already, and really, this is the time right now. Subscribe. Now. Do it now. Do it right now. What else are you doing? Subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And one concept, Michael, before we move on, we haven't talked about is podcast empathy. And the best way you can show empathy for this podcast is by leaving a five-star review. If you do that, we will read it on the air and Michael will feel loved. I will too. We would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School in the University Zach of North Texas for his editing skills. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. <laughs> and I'm at 42. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Setting up.